0: For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel joining me over Zoom video conference. Governor Stitt's secretary of education comes under fire after he criticized schools for closing amid rising COVID-19 numbers. Ryan Walters, who is running as Republican for state superintendent, says shutting down schools should not be a first reaction, but a last resort. The comments drew widespread condemnation from education officials for Walters and Governor Stitt. Ryan, what do you think of education secretary's remarks?
1: Well, you represented in Monroe Nichols out of Tulsa, I think, summed it up best. And he said that they were just tone deaf, you know, that they were completely detached from reality. And and i uh, tend to agree uh, wholeheartedly with that statement that they are tone deaf and detached from reality. And I'm and I'm not just speaking as a, a political pundit on the radio. I'm, I'm speaking as a, as a dad of two kids in Oklahoma City Public Schools um, that, you know, as we're taping right now, my, my kids are, it's back, you know, back to 2020 times. I mean, my kids are in the in the room next door to uh, where I'm taping because they're on asynchronous learning through Oklahoma City Public Schools. Um, I can tell you as, as a parent who Desperately wants my kids back in in-person instruction um, and, and have done everything that, that we can to make that possible from supporting the social distancing and mask wearing at the outset to you know getting our kids vaccinated. The the this isn't uh, this wasn't a first step. Um, you know, we are in constant communication with both of my kids' teachers, uh, the principal at Cleveland over there, Miss Stafford, the, the folks are doing. Such difficult work right now, uh, and doing it so uh, as as best as they can. Um, And the kids, the kids want to be back in school too. But I can tell you, earlier this week, uh, Monday night, uh, you know, my my son was just really upset because he just felt like he was just being pulled in different directions. He had a new substitute just about every day. uh, At that point, you know, they'd do one lesson, and the next day you'd have disruption in the other lesson. Um, And so, it's not even a matter of you know getting substitutes out there; it's a matter of continuity. And when you just don't have the, the personnel to, to get people in the classroom and then have people in the classroom that can provide educational continuity, it is better to just be at home on their Chromebook doing doing this work. It's not ideal, uh, but that's the situation that we're in right now. And to criticize school districts for making these difficult decisions without really empathizing with the reality on the ground is, is tone deaf.
0: Neva?
2: Well, I think when you have the Secretary of Education, I mean, making this tweet that basically... Uh, leads off by something along the line of saying that the first reaction shouldn't be to to shut schools down. You're right, Ryan. It was. I don't think it was any school district's first reaction. I think uh, first of all, across the board, not all school districts are closed. I mean, for this week or ten days or whatever they they think they need to get enough folks back in the the personnel, teachers back in the classroom, back in the cafeterias, doing what they need. And I think uh, this kind of blanket uh, swipe at uh, the education community is not constructive. I mean, we've seen this battle uh, ongoing now for way too long and I think uh, what we have to really look at uh, beyond just kind of these uh, these kind of skirmishes back and forth of social media driven or whatever is what is happening really in the local districts I mean what local school boards the parents in those school districts uh, the teachers and the patrons the the personnel across the board, what they're trying to do. There was a perfect example in the Clinton public schools where you had a a school board member who also is a parent with kids in the school who basically called up and said, what can I do to help? And volunteered for three shifts of cafeteria duty um, in an elementary school earlier this week. Just to be helpful. So I think we need to look at the, you know, all of the stories, not just, uh, not just the criticisms, not just the give and take of people having differences of opinion. But I think, again, we go back to what I always uh, say, and it is about local control. It is about these school districts uh, figuring out what works best for them, and just to make blanket criticisms on either side. I mean, let's, whether it's Democrat, Republican, it's not a partisan-driven issue. It's an education issue, and I think it should be looked at and focused on in that regard.
0: Late, late last week, State Representative Terry O'Donnell announced he is resigning his number two post in the State House. O'Donnell says while he is leaving as Speaker Pro Tem, he will remain as a lawmaker while he fights accusations of corruption for crafting law to help his wife to get a job as a tag agent. Neva, are you surprised by O'Donnell's resignation?
2: Not, not terribly surprised. I think uh, there was some expectation that uh, he would take a look at this, knowing that he's got a, a legal battle in front of him, knowing that he's still, by by his own uh, uh admission, he's going to fight it aggressively, but he's also going to remain in the House of Representatives. He's just not going to uh, maintain his uh, position as uh, the pro tem. So there will, be, uh, there will be a new selection uh, for a pro tem before, before the session begins uh, next month. Uh, I think, if, you know, we have a is, we have a situation here, as I said uh, last week. I mean, he now has a court process. There is there is a path that he is going to take. He has uh, been very vigorous in saying that he's innocent, that they're going to fight this aggressively, both he and his wife, the charges that have uh, come down in these indictments. And th- so we'll have to wait and see how all, all of that takes its course. In the meantime, uh, the legislature has business to conduct. The House of Representatives needs a leadership team in place, and so uh, we will see—you um, know—and watch with interest how that how all of that comes about. But in, in the uh, in the midst of where where the uh, where where Terry O'Donnell and his wife are right now, I think they've set the stage on how they're going to move forward through this process.
0: Ryan.
1: Well, I think that that's right, and uh, Neva's uh, uh, you know spot on in, in saying that one of the things that we should be looking for here is is what this means for leadership changes in the House, because you know those things can have a domino effect. I mean, there there will be a new election for Pro Temp, whoever runs for that and, and wins presumably will be somebody that's already holding a particular leadership uh, post in the House, that that will become vacant whenever uh, they assume the pro temp position. And so, you know, to have kind of these these internal and I and I say caucus decisions because, you know, the Republicans have such a majority that it's, you know, the Democrats are not really going to have a say in who these leaders are. Um, but having these kind of internal caucus decisions over over power and leadership positions just weeks away from session is you know is not I don't want to say it's unusual but it's not something that typically happens. Usually these leadership decisions are made uh, well in advance of the legislative session kicking off. Uh, and I think that him resigning, I think uh, Representative O'Donnell uh, resigning from the, this position isn't. All that surprising. Uh, it is a, a difficult thing to do to defend yourself vigorously, uh, and to do that without distraction to your caucus. Um, you know, any press conference that he is at, uh, any statement that he makes throughout the course of this legislative session, even if he's speaking on behalf of the caucus, will almost certainly be followed up by questions from the media about the uh, the, the status of his uh, criminal case and the criminal case against his wife. Um, and you know, I think one of the other things, and I, as I've visited with. Uh, lawmakers over the last couple of weeks, and uh, just trying to help, you know, better understand this situation. One of the things that I think will be interesting as the investigation and the prosecution unfolds is, um, you know, when did when did folks know, or did lawmakers, did other lawmakers realize that this legislation that they were voting for uh, was going to particularly affect and, and benefit uh, their colleague? Um, I you know I don't know that uh, you know I, I had operated under the assumption that representative O'Donnell had been very forthright in that. Um, And I'm not sure that some members didn't uh, appreciate that that was what was happening with this legislation, or did the governor's office understand that? Um, I don't think that those things are are necessarily uh, critical to the criminal components here, or, 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 you know, cast a wider net for those that might have some criminal liability at all. I'm not not suggesting that, but just the the politics of of how all this went down. And, you know, as we think about moving forward, you know, what kind of uh, ethical considerations might we uh, you know, need to put in, uh, put forward to address this and make sure that something like this doesn't happen in the future.
2: Well, and I think it's also, it should be pointed out that uh, Representative O'Donnell has also stated more than once that he believes that uh, that in, in his mind that much of this stems from the fact that he held uh, some, as he described them, influential people accountable for uh, abuse of power. I mean, some of the same things that he's now um, you know, facing in terms of the, the uh, in, indictment over whether or not uh, the, uh, in, in 2018 and 2019, the legislation that he sponsored and voted for um, would basically uh, set the stage for making it easier for tag agents to designate their successors which uh, in in the instance of his wife was what occurred and so um you know how that all came about and you're right ryan i mean uh, much of this we have to assume during the grand jury process much of this probably was discussed and uh, kind of brought to light behind closed doors with uh whatever, you know, whatever list of folks uh, were, you know, were before the grand jury. I mean, uh, talking about this particular, uh, this particular uh, set of allegations that they were, uh, that they were Uh, discussing and reviewing so um, lots of legal implications but i do think that representative o'donnell setting aside his leadership position uh does does make it much easier for the house republican leadership to move forward and not have this as a distraction and you have to um i think you have to um be um, you have to really recognize that he didn't have to do this, but he chose to do this. So you have to assume that he did it for the better good of the Republicans and the leadership team and the caucus, uh, the Republican caucus at large.
0: The U.S. Supreme Court is keeping in place a lower court's decision. Ruling McGirt versus Oklahoma is not retroactive, the move greatly limits the number of people who can challenge their convictions for past crimes on newly affirmed Indian reservations. Ryan, is this the last we're going to hear from the high court on McGirt?
1: Oh, far from it. I, you know, uh, if, if my grandkids are lawyers, they'll they'll likely be litigating <laughs> McGirt issues uh, in Oklahoma, and 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 I think that that's just you know the way that the law works. Uh, you know, as, as you know, we'll we'll continue to to see this. I think that. Um, when we look at the Supreme Court, what they did here, and, and you know, they, there's not, there's not an opinion. Um, you know, we don't have any real insight into why the Supreme Court did what they did. Um, but it was just a denial. It was, it was a denial of the, 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 you know, there was some briefing from both parties, but the court itself just said, we're denying the petition for certiorari, which is how something ends up in front of the court to begin with. So they said no. Uh, but it's important to say what it is and what it isn't. Um, it is, the court's first look at some of the jurisdictional consequences of McGirt uh, and looking and wanting to know, what, looking back, whether the issues that were raised by McGirt can be applied retroactively to those individuals that are accused and convicted and have exhausted all of their appellate um, uh, rights and they have a final judgment. Um, and so the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals, in answer to that question, said that it was not retroactive, that if you've exhausted all of your appeals, um, that that's it. You don't get to raise these McGirt jurisdictional issues. You don't get you don't get this second bite at the apple. Um, and the Supreme Court, in saying that they denied this, in essence, affirmed what the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals is. Um, it is not. I think the last time that we're going to see the jurisdictional issue uh, come up before this court, I suspect that they're going to revisit this at some point. Jurisdiction, just you know, as a as kind of a, a reminder to folks, is really a court's power. Uh, to bind you to its sentence and its judgment and its orders. And if a court doesn't have jurisdiction, uh, then it doesn't have the power. And, you know, for me, jurisdiction either exists or it doesn't. Uh, If if a court uh, in Russia right now convicts me of uh, any number of things, um, those sentences aren't binding on me because that court doesn't have jurisdiction over me. Russia doesn't have jurisdiction over me. And that's the same thing that we're dealing with here. The other thing is that it's not a repudiation of McGirt itself. Uh, the fundamental core holding of McGirt is as binding today as it was before this most recent decision not to hear this case from the United States Supreme Court.
0: Neva,
2: well, I, you know, I do think uh, you're right. I mean, the uh, Supreme Court's action on Monday, basically putting off the decision, is one thing, but they also were scheduled today. To um, continue to review that on whether or not they would uh, uh, look at this uh, 2020 court ruling again on McGirt, so uh, there's still a lot of intrigue, a lot of drama around this. I mean, as we've talked about many times, I mean, you have a situation where, uh, I mean, we have the Oklahoma Attorney General's office that has filed dozens of uh, uh, petitions asking the court to reverse the McGirt decision. You've got, uh, you've got, you've got so many uh, different. Um, Uh, groups and individuals that have been weighing in on this across the board and it's been a fascinating case even at the U.S. Supreme Court level because you know we had an instance where I mean it it was a very narrow ruling Um, initially had been deadlocked because uh, uh, Gorsuch had not uh, voted and then came back uh, the next time around voted it became I believe five four decision if I remember right Ryan probably remembers better than I on the legal side of this but uh um, I think it it does it does again set the stage for the the whole political dynamic of this and how it continues to play beyond the court side of it how it continues to play as a real talking point uh, in this governor's race that we're now right in the midst of. I mean, we're six months away from a, from a Republican primaries and we're and Democrat primaries as well, but we are now seeing everyone kind of ramp up um, the real. The real highly charged political seasons, and uh, I think we'll see a lot more, a lot more give and take on these kind of questions.
1: And, and Eva mentioned something important there. She went back and, and talked about the 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 deadlock decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, even, even though the state administration and Attorney General O'Connor um, are you know filing this this flurry of of applications for the United States Supreme Court to revisit McGirt, you have to think that the court itself doesn't have a lot of appetite. Uh, to want to go back into this that quickly I mean they it took this is a case that um, is unprecedented in that it uh, it transcended multiple dockets of the year of the court so you know two years uh, mm-hmm. on the court's uh, um, uh, docket before they came down with a decision so um, and it I don't wasn't
0: even the first one either and it wasn't, was yeah. The, yeah there was another one case that, that they decided they decided not to hear decided right. went on with McGirt.
1: Right. yeah. And so, I mean, it, it was a really, I think, tortured process for the court. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mean that in the in the sense that it that it affected the the logic or, or the, the uh, rationale of their decision, but it was a difficult opinion to reach. And you know, I think whenever the court struggles with an opinion like that uh, over over time, they're not real excited to jump right back into it, especially on the fundamental issues. I mean, we may and that's why I think the, these issues around. Retroactive jurisdiction; these are the going to be the issues that the court is willing to either say something about. Um, but you know, entirely revisiting McGirt the way that the the governor and the attorney general want, I don't think that you're going to get this Roberts court uh, really excited to do that unless you have real compelling uh, consequences that are that are playing out without some sort of guidance from the court, and that's just not the case right now, in spite of a lot of the. Uh, kind of pandemonium and hysteria that is being uh, put out on, uh, on social media about the consequences of McGurth. The sky is not falling. I checked. I just walked outside. It's, I just checked. It's not falling.
0: Two Oklahoma death row inmates are suggesting an alternative method for their executions. At the prodding of a federal judge, Donald Grant and Gilbert Postel agreed to death by firing squad as a way to delay their upcoming lethal injections. Oklahoma has never executed someone by firing squad, but it is allowed under state law. Neva, do you think we will see these men before a firing squad?
2: I don't know. I mean, but the the important point is that it is one of several execution methods that is authorized by Oklahoma law. I mean, we're one of, uh, I believe, four states uh, that uh, have firing squad as a as a potential uh, use for execution. I think Mississippi, Utah. South Carolina or the others. And, you know, and since 1976, I went back and looked because I was wondering, you know, had there actually been any uh, executions by firing squad. And during that time period, there have been three in the country. So um, while most states, I think, 30 plus states use lethal injection as the primary as their primary um, method of execution. I mean, this is certainly still one for Oklahoma under consideration. I mean, uh, and I think it will be interesting. I mean, the judge uh, had some fascinating testimony um, in his courtroom, including uh, this emergency room specialist with, I think, 40,000 hours of uh, uh, ER experience and someone who had really studied extensively the use of firing squads and his basic um, um, testimony to the court was that that using four high-powered rifles and and uh, d- uh, execution in this method was uh, was in his estimation uh, virtually uh, a situation where. The person being executed would feel no pain. I mean, it would be that instantaneous. And and uh, if the if the issue is whether or not uh, the lethal injection um, is uh, is something that people you know have have objections to because because of all these issues that have been raised in the last uh, execution here in Oklahoma, this is I think what is now bringing the issue of the potential for the use of the firing squad uh, into the into the whole dialogue.
0: Ryan.
1: Well, you know, how we got here, I think, is is really bizarre, um, because we we have this trial coming up at the end of February, uh, where the same judge that was hearing, the same federal judge that was hearing testimony that Neva talked about, about the firing squad, um, we, he's going to be presiding over this trial in Oklahoma City in the Western District. Judge Frye is going to be presiding over that. He'd originally said, if you wanted to be a plaintiff in that case, and, and the the issue in that case is whether or not Oklahoma's existing current lethal injection protocol satisfi- satisfies the requirements of the Eighth Amendment of the United States Constitution. Judge Fryant said if you want to be a part of that case challenging Oklahoma's lethal injection protocol, then you have to uh, proffer an alternate an alternate method of execution before this court. I'm not going to just let you come up here and say uh, lethal injections cruel and unusual. Uh, I want you to give me an alter- an alternative um, And so that's why we began to hear this testimony. The, the, the folks that put forward the firing squad here, they weren't, uh, they weren't like rushing to the front of the line, waving their hand and saying, Hey, put me to death by firing squad. And, or they only did this and their lawyers only presented this evidence because the judge said it was a condition of remaining plaintiffs, uh, on this case and this trial, that's going to be coming up in February 28th, uh, in Oklahoma city. I say it's bizarre because this case, this trial will happen. And two of these individuals are set to be executed. Uh, before the trial even happens. So we could end up in this situation where the state of Oklahoma, uh, by uh, lethal injection, executes two individuals. And then later in February, or maybe in a a decision in March, we could have a federal court say that that method uh, was unconstitutional. And so the state of Oklahoma is essentially killing the plaintiffs in a case challenging the method that the state's trying to kill them with. Uh, And that's the bizarre situation. The other thing about the the firing squad, I just want to mention uh, briefly is it reminded me of this dissenting opinion uh, several years back by the then chief judge of the Ninth Circuit, uh, Judge Alex Kaczynski, somebody who supported the death penalty uh, while he was on the bench. He did say that using drugs meant for he was talking about lethal injection, he said using drugs meant for individuals with medical needs. To carry out executions is a misguided effort to mask the brutality of executions making, by making them look serene and beautiful, like something any one of us might experience in our final moments. And he goes on to say, if we as a society cannot stomach the splatter from an execution carried out by a firing squad, then we shouldn't be carrying out executions at all. And I think that for the past 40 plus years, America, led by Oklahoma in creating the lethal injection process, has tried to sanitize what it means for the state to execute someone. And um, so you know, perhaps the firing squad is, is a way to remind us of the gravity of what it is that we're doing, that it's not this sterile, serene thing, that it's state-sponsored killing. Whether you approve of that or disapprove of it, it is what it is.
2: Well, I think it's interesting, too. I mean, when when we talk about this potential of a firing squad, I mean, the uh, Department of Corrections, uh, one of the things that was brought out in this conversation is the fact that there's currently no protocol in place for a firing squad execution. So if it moves that direction, uh, like it would uh, in any state, if you were talking about, I mean, states that that use lethal gas, use electrocution, uh, certainly the many states that use the lethal injection or firing. Squad or other methods uh, for execution. I mean, there there is that element to it from the DOC standpoint of having to then move through this process. And as we know in the past, uh, when we start talking about protocols and start talking about uh, um, all of the intricacies of, of setting setting that in place, uh, it it lends to again more time in the courtroom and more legal challenges and more questions being raised on the legal side. So, you know, all of this gets blurred. I mean, Brian's point about uh, whether people believe in the death penalty or not, that's one discussion, but it's not the discussion when you have a case where um, it, the decision has been made by a jury of their peers, they have, they have been sentenced to, to the death penalty, then it becomes incumbent upon the state to provide the method and the, and the uh, protocol to be able to carry that out. And I think so sometimes these kind of get blurred together, but they really are separate discussions in my opinion.
0: Epic is filing a countersuit against its former management company. The virtual charter school is asking for $9.3 million to recoup millions in lost penalties and accusing its co-founders of a scheme to enrich themselves. The action comes after co-founders Ben Harris and David Cheney sued Epic in December for more than $6.8 million. Ryan, what do you think about the latest move by the state's largest virtual charter school?
1: Well, earlier we were talking about McGirt, and you, you asked how how long. Uh, if I thought that this was the last word in McGirt, and I said that if I had grandchildren, that they might be litigating McGirt. If I have great grandchildren, they may be litigating uh, the fallout from from Epic <laughs> over the last decade in Oklahoma. Um, this this was, I think, a predictable move. I think that we we may have even even I may have even you know, mentioned this uh, because it just it seems so predictable that uh, when the founders came in and. Were bizarrely asking for this money, uh, e- even though it it seemed like they'd you know cut gotten away with it, right? I mean that they, uh, or at least you know, were able to you know slip off into obscurity uh, and hope that some criminal charge never drops as a result of uh, the scathing audit that uh, the state of Oklahoma conducted on Epic. They show back up and they ask for more, uh, and now of course Epic comes back and says, "Well, you're the ones that created this situation," and cost us 9 million. And actually it wasn't just 9 million. I think that the news reports that I've read, uh, said that over the course of their management of, of Epic, uh, charter schools, that they'd actually cost the state 20 million in fees. And that 11 million of that had already been reimbursed, uh, by Epic youth services, the management company and and these owners. Um, so I think that, I think that it was, a. uh, and again, I'm not one of the lawyers. I'm not in the room. I could be missing something here. But from a strategic standpoint, it seemed like a, an epic uh, strategic failure to file this lawsuit uh, in the first place. And now they've got this countersuit. And you know, this thing's going to go on for a while. I, I can't imagine uh, that, the, that the founders of Epic walk away from this, one, with the millions of dollars that they're asking for. And two, I think that they're going to walk away with more trouble than they've already got. Neva,
2: I I think you're right. I mean, this this uh, you know, suit, countersuit. I mean, it it clearly is a a plan. It appears. I mean, by these uh, original co-founders of Epic Charter School. I mean that if they can drag this out in court, I mean uh, that we could be talking uh, not months but years. I mean, in this process. And this is something that has gone on already for years, as we talked about. I mean, back in 2019, the OSBI, uh, when they were investigating the Epic Learning Fund, which is the the, the vehicle that the two co-founders of Epic used uh, as their kind of private vehicle to Get the money that they did. I mean, this off-the-top uh, uh, cut that they were that they were taking in this private entity, not in the not in the school funds. And uh, at that time, I mean they it was described as a hotbed of embezzlement. I mean those were the very words that were used. Then you have the state auditor and inspector who has continued to maintain that she is waiting for legal action. She wants to see basically all three of the of the principal folks involved, the two co-founders and their CFO um, at, in, involved in this, uh, wants to you know wants to see them, you know, in her estimation, brought to justice. So she's been very aggressive and never uh, done anything, but continue to uh, uh, kind of explore this whole this whole issue with Epic and turned over uh, a, a great amount of evidence to the attorney general uh, that she said demonstrated that that the Epic Youth Services. Uh, Uh, This fund had siphoned off these millions of dollars that she says are taxpayer dollars that were illegally submitted as uh, false claims in the virtual school system. So, I mean, these are big allegations, millions of dollars of money uh, uh, being uh, talked about. And I think Ryan is right. And as we've talked about now for several years on this show, uh, this may be a conversation that doesn't go away anytime soon.
0: Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.